you're not going to more than likely see it in the first 20 years of the building. You see it in how it affects generations after that. Architecture is such a such a long game. It's it's just about you know the the ripple effect that you see in Raleigh right now is the result of decisions that were made a long time ago now. You're listening to Illogical by Truth. This podcast decodes the language, decisions, and hidden areas of local power that often seems illogical to residents. The goal of this podcast is to empower people to engage locally and to understand how significant it is to be aware and active at the local level. Once local government is logical, it will become meaningful and provide the benefits that allows for people to live a thriving life. On our show today is Matt and Zach from in situ. I am excited about our conversation today. Uh, number one, because we're getting to the heart of the matter. We're actually getting to the sort of the design space. And so again, I want to welcome Matt and Zach to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. So I'll start off uh, with a question uh, that will allow for the audience to get to know who you are, but also a question that allows for us to understand your craft. You're both architects and designers. And so design and architecture are creative spaces that allow for you to embrace the design space with your own personality. How did your story lead you to this work and how does it show up in your work? And Matt, we'll start with you. Thanks, Terrence. Um, yeah, I think uh, for most architects, they can trace back a time in their life when they realized they wanted to be an architect. Um, and uh, for many of us, it, that story has to do with drawing or making things or always being curious with how things work um, or how, how cities work. Um, for me specifically, uh, I moved around a lot when I was a kid and um, I lived everywhere from Boston to uh, the rural Ozark Mountains. Uh, and so a, a range of places. And I, I think I became really interested in places and cities and um, how, how cities are organized uh, and how, how buildings, especially civic buildings, kind of contribute uh, to, the, to the built environment. Um, and always knew I wanted to be an architect. I took a really slow road to get there. I didn't become licensed until I was 35, but, uh, but it was always something that I knew um, that I knew I wanted to do. And, you know, in terms of starting, uh, starting a, a company, uh, in situ studio, um, that was something that I was pretty sure I wanted to go after, uh, about halfway through graduate school in architecture. Um, I, it became apparent to me that, um, you really, uh, could make a big difference as an architect and, and be involved in some pretty, pretty amazing things. Uh, and, I was never uh, a great employee uh, <laughs> or, or I never really had that personality. <laughs> um, so if, I think, I think I always kind of had this uh, itch to, um, to, to work through what it would mean to, uh, to create a firm. And, and I know you did birth this firm. So how did you come up with that name? Like how did, how did you, like what, what, what's the meaning of the name? how did you come up with the name in situ? Yeah. So uh, the in situ uh, or the phrase in situ refers to anything that's in its original or natural position. And um, we in our work, uh, we work really hard to um, study the places we're working in, uh, study the sites we're working on. And we try to uncover uh, the things that are beautiful about that place uh, and design things that connect with those beautiful things. Um, and so, you know, so something in your question uh, alluded to the idea that architects, you know, are, are creative people and that architecture is an opportunity to express yourself create, mm -hmm. creatively. I, I actually would push it back against that a little bit. Um, it's a question we get a lot as architects, but um, I actually I think great architecture uh, has a has um, much more to it than just what an architect wanted to do. Um, we're not, you know, we're not just sitting in a room by ourselves trying to be more interesting or creative than the next architect down the street. Ideally, we're listening to our clients, listening to the stories of the places that we're working in and paying attention to the physical attributes of the places we're working in and searching for something that is uh, inherently true and beautiful about that place uh, and bringing that into, into being. Um, wow. I think that's the main 
the main goal. So it's very different than art, yeah. uh, which might be more personally really expressive. Right? I think if the reflection of our of ourselves show shows up in the work, the work sucks. Ah, I think really I think the uh, right. uh, the whole goal is to uh, find the root, the story, the essence of the project, of the people, of the community, of the context, and um, once we find all of that and are able to work within those constraints, um, constraints is a good thing. There's no room for ourselves, so let's let's get that out of the equation to to start. So it's wonderful to hear like h- how you think about architect and design because most people would think the reverse the, the, the inverse of that they would think that you come in you're an amazing creative person my brother's an artist people pay him to just paint what's in his brain and you're saying we're the opposite <laughs> we, we want to hear what the audience wants and care about and then we want to make that come to life and I'm glad that you made that distinction um, because I want to I want to move into local government at this point um, because now we're talking about a large group of people having say so about a space, a region, a history, a geography. And so, you know, most people confuse your role as an architect designer with a developer. Explain your job and how that differs from that of a developer. And Zach, we'll we'll start with you this time. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think this, I think you could ask this question to uh, every architect in town and, and, Almost every one of them would have the same answer, uh, that uh, no architect is working, or very few architects are working as a developer, Mm -hmm. and most of them that are are not doing it in their local context. They're doing it uh, in these kind of larger pro forma exercises from uh, further afield. Um, I think that, uh, you know, as developers are organizing uh, projects from, you know, a financial perspective, what, you know, in the, in the end, it's about making money. Uh, and f- so architects don't necessarily fit that bill very well, right? We don't fit into their equation because uh, we're not willing to cut corners to make money. That's not what we're about it, by by trade. Uh, we're about solving problems in a community. So wow. um, we're solving kind of programming constraints for a project. Um, so... I think the big distinction is we show up too late often. Mm. Architects show up once a lot of those kind of brass tax decisions are made. And yeah. so, you know, we're working within uh, the developer's vision and not necessarily the community where the development is happening. That's powerful. And, and Matt, I want to share that same question with you as well. Yeah, I think that last point uh, about when architects typically are engaged in a process um would be one of the things that uh, is um, most frustrating as an architect, and it's one of the biggest opportunities that most projects miss. I think uh, architects, uh, rather than being kind of just creative people who bring their vision to the project, I think one of the things that we are uh, a little or a little different in the way that we see the world mm-hmm. uh, and to the extent to, to which we see the world, right? I mean, we are... Uh, it, ideally, I think architects are observers of a place. Uh, they're able to find things that are good about it, and they're able to connect with those things as they uh, continue to develop what's already there. Um, and m- very few conversations like that are had early on in the development of a major development project. Um, oftentimes, it's about uh, maximizing land usage, it's about uh, leasable square footage, um, it's about assembling the right properties, but very few people are asking, in those in those processes are asking questions about what's good about this place, what's beneficial about this place, uh, who's already here, um, you know, what's their role gonna be when something new is built, how can we make the most out of, out of the kind of things that this place gives us? Uh, and so when architects are brought in too late in a process, which, as Zach said, is almost always the case, um, and all the decisions are made, uh, you've missed the opportunity to think a little more uh, poetically and from a community perspective about uh, the potentials of a place. And so you're, you might be building something big, you might be building something profitable, but you aren't necessarily building something beneficial really good. Uh, because nobody's really had that conversation. I think at the end of the day, uh, sorry, I cut you no, off. No, 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 no. At the end of the day, I think you know another distinction between 
art and architecture is we're a service profession. So we're brought in to solve uh, an issue for a client that is prescriptive in nature. And so um, we're not the ones uh, deciding what the prescription should be at the mm. top. Now, now, most of the listeners are either hearing architects and designers for the first time. Mm. They've never heard a voice. <laughs> so, so this is a very first time hearing this distinction. How should they understand the term too late? Like, how, how can we provide substance to that? Because um, they, they're hearing from you for the first time. You provided clarity between you and the developer. When you say decisions and too late, how should, how should a person, that's a common person that's just trying to understand their local government, the local design space, how should they understand that term? Defining too late is, uh, is hard to do. I mean, it depends on the scale of the project. But I'll use Raleigh as an example. We have uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 new buildings a year going up of substantial size. My guess is the big decisions were being made on those projects five to ten years ago. Gotcha. So the time you see a rendering on a on the construction fencing, or you see a uh, you know a concept video in a city council meeting, it's uh, well down the road. And so wheels are spinning, snowballs are forming, and there's huge amounts of money are already involved. Yeah, really good. Part, yeah, and parcel acquisition can sometimes be, you know, 20 years before that they'd started gathering properties. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, it, it sounds, it almost sounds hopeless, but by the time, <laughs> by, the, by the time the public hearing placards go up on the property uh, and you have the opportunity to go speak uh, before whatever body the project's being presented to, um, there's already a lot of, a lot of momentum uh, that usually involves people's time and, and a great deal of money uh, and a lot of research and legal research on the part of the developer and design team they've hired um, to figure out exactly how they're uh, meeting the, um, the policies that are in place uh, at the city level. Um, sometimes these things also have uh, PUDs, the, the planned uh, development overlays that in some cases allow them to do almost anything they want to. Right. <laughs> um, and right. so there, it's, a, it's, a real, um, it's a real gauntlet for the average citizen to kind of get in there and figure out what's happening, how it relates to the UDO or any other policies in place, and what they can do about it. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think the, the main thing, like I, I live very close to the Newburn Avenue corridor, um, and they're, uh, the city, when they, as they're doing the bus rapid transit, is having to, um, you know, uh, lay eminent domain on a number of properties, change some, uh, some zoning uses uh, just for future use as that corridor changes. Uh, there's been a lot of utility work and investigation going on. I mean, there's a lot of evidence of stuff happening along Newburn Avenue. Yeah. Um, and, um, I, you know, I think people see that happening but aren't necessarily always sure where to plug in. Uh, to the process. And those, those changes can have a huge impact on your property values and land use and other stuff. So. And, and that, that sort of lends itself well into the next question. Now, you said by, by just default, your craft requires that you get feedback from people, mm. like in order for you to do your job well. And so local government normally is, when you're talking about, you know, being on a particular corridor, seeing different zoning signs, those are, so those are sort of the laws that start sort of going out, giving you alarms. So local government set laws that determine the shape and style of a design space in cities. Most of the time, these laws require that the community be engaged and their feedback is embraced. As designers, how do you value community engagement and feedback? Now, you said by default, this is what you do. But why is that valuable? Like, why, why is that feedback? Why would it be a law? Like, why, 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 why is that valuable or important? Um, and, and most of the listeners see the signs and they see that the city's reaching out. But, it, but like, I, wanna, I want them to understand, like, why is that important for not just it to be a law, but for it to be something that's like the default of your craft? I mean, I, I think that... Uh it's interesting because as uh, as designers, I think most architects would feel this way. Your initial instinct when you receive feedback that's opposed to what you have proposed, <laughs> your initial instinct is to resist it. Mm -hmm. But in in our experience, at least, uh, every time we've gotten feedback, even 
feedback that sometimes amounts to someone telling you they're really not on board with what you're proposing, <laughs> uh, you, you go back to the drawing board and you, and you end up with something better uh, in the end. And that's almost always the case. I mean, the more, the more iterations you put into a project, uh, even, it, even though it ends up in a place you probably never would have imagined, um, the better it's going to be. And, and, and actually, like one of my favorite things about being an architect is that projects rarely end up where we thought they would at the beginning. You know, thank and, God. And if uh, they do, they're never as good. That's right. They're never as good, truly. Or, 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 they're, or they're closer to being, you know, just what we would have done, which wow. who cares what we want to do? Uh, you know, we that's really need to, need to find something that's, uh, you know, that, that's surprising and kind of beyond any individual perspective. Um, I, do, I think the the kind of public input is absolutely critical. I mean, we, we work on really two different types of projects. We work on small private projects, and that's a very intimate back and forth with your client. Um, and, and that kind of collaboration and feedback loop is absolutely critical to making something good. Uh, on the public projects, there's typically some sort of community engagement um, process that, in, that involves iterative presentations to the community that you're designing for and, and getting feedback in some sort of public forum. Um, and while those processes can be kind of chaotic, I mean, it's kind of a, you don't know who's going to show up in the room. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're, you're usually getting a, a range of really thoughtful feedback. I mean, nobody knows better what is happening in a place than the people who've lived there for a long time. Um, this is, you know, it, when it comes to um, some public projects, that sometimes takes the form of simply notifying the public that something's happening. Um, and that, that's the case with like pro large private development projects that have a major impact on the city. The city will notify people within a certain radius that a project is occurring. Mm -hmm. And the main opportunity for engagement is to come to uh, a public hearing or a city council presentation or whatever that might be. Um, and that, that's a, a useful, uh, useful procedure. I do think that, you know, people are not aware enough of those things. They certainly don't come often enough. I'm on the Appearance Commission, and I can't tell you uh, how rare it is for a member of the public to come yeah. and speak out against something that's happening right next door to their house. Um, so, I mean, I think people could be more engaged. But it's also a really intimidating thing for a member of the public to go to one of those for the reasons we already stated, that there's so much more momentum, so much money behind the project. The the person presenting the project to the council or the commission or wherever they are usually has a lawyer representing yes. them. I mean, it's a yes. it's an incredibly intimidating environment, so you can understand why the public stays away. Um, one really interesting thing that the city of Raleigh is doing right now is they have five RFQs out for um, for improvements to major and important public parks, uh, all in East Raleigh, all in uh, historically black neighborhoods. Uh, and they've, I think for the first time ever, they have a separate community engagement consultant that they're wow. looking to hire to kind of shuttle that process for wow. each of those, for at least three of those five projects, uh, which, which is pretty cool. So I think that will get, that will kind of guarantee a much broader and more directly engaged uh, public involvement. Than, than you would typically see. And that's good, but it's just, unfortunately, that's just five parks, yeah, right? There's, that's good. That doesn't, that, it's a great model, hope, yeah. and I hope it's really successful, but it, you know, it's, it's a it's drop good. in the bucket for the amount of money and development that we see pouring into Southeast Raleigh alone, right? Yeah. And, and y'all mentioned several things. One, um, in design, in the design world, I'm not an expert in this space, so please correct me if I walk through there, uh, as I if I make any errors. But the iterations is sort of value, like like mm -hmm. failures to make the product better is sort of like the ideal space. We love it for cell phones. We love it for, <laughs> I mean, I mean, we sneakers, whatever. We want as much iterations and prototypes and testing. But it feels like when we go get to development, it's it's like either you're hate feedback <laughs> yeah. or it's, it's a very unique space to, to be between two architects that, that embrace it, design it and, and recommend that for the design space. But we want it for everything else. <laughs> we want you to prototype everything else, our TVs. Our yeah. <laughs> why, why, is, why do you see this friction between like the design space where, you know, this is where we're going to live. This is where our investment. It's like, this is, you would think that that would be consistent across designing like live space, you know, community space. 
but it seems it has more tension in, in uh, around the design sort of living space than it does with products that we use every day. That's a, a good question. I think the um, it's maybe taking the question in a slightly different direction, uh, and it's you know something all architects want to do projects everywhere, right? I think that's I think. Uh, we're interested in cities and places. Matt alluded to it earlier. We want to know more things about other communities. But I think it's really important that we practice where we live. I think it's really important that we, our representatives, our professionals, are responsible, are held to account for the communities that we're making changes to. Um, I think that's... Uh, that would be, I would argue, that's how historically the profession was. Like, not historically in the last 100 years, but prior to that, the the architect slash master builder was from that place. And wow. they spent their entire life maybe doing one building. Wow. And so the, the impact on the community was, uh, or the adjustments or the engagement or wh- however you want to frame it, uh, I think is uh, was really impactful. And those are the buildings we celebrate and uh, are still there today. So I'm coming back around to say it's a it's a time thing, right? Where we're the development world needs a quick answer and I think that the the solution is actually much longer term. That's good. That's good. We have lots of friends who are developers. Yeah. Like and the and the world they live in is completely different than the world we live in. <laughs> uh, and they I mean they do a really important thing. I mean yeah. they 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 organize land. They uh, gather investment money from from people who are who are looking to uh, see a return on their money, but are willing to kind of invest in physical improvements to the city. Yeah. Uh, and they and they take on all that risk. I mean, a huge mm-hmm. amount of risk, like the amount of money that a developer owes other people nah. during the process. <laughs> <laughs> it would make most of us just wow. kind of you know go into the fetal position and wow. pray for help. You know, I mean, it's just, a, it's a lot of, it's yeah. a, it's a lot of stress. Um, and so you can understand the motive to want to be expedient in the way you engage the design process. Um, I think what it often does though, is it doesn't move like a- approaching it in that way does not always yield the best uh, to use their term product in the end. Um, and there, I mean, there are a lot of reasons that the expedient approach still works in Raleigh. I mean, it's a relatively young, small city. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Developers aren't really having to compete with each other yet, uh, you know, to, to do the best building. That's good. They're just trying to do the most buildings, that's right? That's good. Uh, so, I mean, it'll eventually change that's just good. by the, as the nature of the city changes. I mean, if you go to a major city like Chicago, yeah. uh, the quality of building, mm. the time spent, designing the buildings, detailing the buildings, building the buildings is much lo- longer in all wow. stages of the process than it is in a city like Raleigh because, you know, you have to distinguish yourself. Um, and so I think that will change uh, over time, you know, ne- necessarily. So, I mean, I, I think we're aware, we don't want to disparage developers, and I think we're aware of the fact that uh, the way we see the world and the way yes, they see the yes. world couldn't be yeah. any more opposed. <laughs> but, like, for me, all the more reason to have yeah. – both of us in the room yeah. earlier on, yeah. it, you know, it's not just, it's not to be in the way, yeah. but it's to offer, you know, it's kind of like we're, we'll, we'll be the voice on the other shoulder saying, yeah, but what about, <laughs> or what if you did, yes. or it could be like this, or, yeah. you know, and just kind of feeding those ideas earlier on. I mean, it, it could be, could be a really productive thing. Yeah. I think I, uh, I agree with you, uh, you Matt. It's, it's not, we're not disparaging development. I think from any, um, point, but just really wanting to have a critical look at it, just like we would have a critical look on any project uh, we work on. I think that having this broader team earlier on helps expand the perspective. Yeah. Now, now, let's create that room, that early room where decisions are being made. So you have, so when someone has a property they want to build, um, usually they approach the city and they apply, um, and they hold meetings with staff. Um, once, you know, there's negotiations with staff and an initial outreach to the community, the zoning project is sent to the planning commission and then the city council. And this is, this, I'm using a sample from Raleigh um, in, in, in the south of Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, and I believe it's uh, a similar model that can be seen in other places, but I'm just walking you through their room. 
Um, and so the zoning project is sent to the planning commission, then the, then the city council uh, makes the final decision. Um, the city council appoints the planning commission members. So those are appointed in, in, in our city um, by the council. Um, so the momentum for the support of a project um, that is built is really on the front end of zoning, of the zoning process, rather than on the back end where the average person becomes aware of the like potential impact. So you normally see in, in council meetings this massive room filled with people mm. who are not happy with a project, yeah. but all of the sort of decisions were being drummed down, and now this final vote is really some of the final decisions, whereas the momentum was earlier on. So I'm just trying to build that room for people. Um, so here's the question. So if the average citizen is not engaged early or barely engaged early and in a meaningful way, when are architects and designers engaged on a typical construction project? Like when is that? Like, like I'm just talking from the average person who has a home and is hearing that a big apartment complex is coming. Help us understand when you become notified or when you enter the room to participate um, between the, the applicant, the planning commission, the city council, the staff, where do you enter the room? Yeah, I mean, typically we would be uh, engaged, um, if we're talking about a, pro a project, like a larger project that's done by a developer, and I should be clear, we don't work on very many large <laughs> projects with developers, uh, kind of by design, honestly. Um, but um, the you know typically you are brought in um, fairly early on, what would seem to be pretty early in the process. But most of the uh, decisions about land acquisition, the number of whether it's a mixed use project or a housing project or whatever, the number of units or, or amount of rentable square footage that is required for the pro forma to, to, to work out. Um, all of those things are pretty much already determined and the developer already has a relationship with uh, investors uh, who typically have a time frame on their uh, on their return, right? Gotcha. And so so there's a there's a clock ticking, right? They gotcha. own land that they're paying a mortgage on. Uh, they you know and the, and the longer this thing takes, uh, the more it costs the developer, which means they basically make less money in the end once they give the return on the investment back to the investors. So it's uh, I mean you're kind of you're brought in when all those things are already in motion and the and the clock's ticking, and so immediately you're. The, the process is kind of uh, under under a little bit of stress. <laughs> um, the The process with the city is iterative, and it gets more detailed as it goes. You, you typically start with something called a sketch plan review, which is just a it's a informal uh, meeting with city staff where you're in a room with uh, all the different specialties on, on the plans review side of the city staff. Um, and they're offering their feedback and asking questions and, you know, making sure that you're aware of certain requirements that you may not have been aware of, whatever that might be. And you're just looking for a general buy-in to the to a, usually a site plan concept. Maybe you're looking a little bit at massing or building heights or something, but it's a real uh, sketchy thing, uh, and then you're going to your event after that. You're going to first go through a site plan review, and there are different tiers of site plan review depending on how big the project is. You will be in front of council for that, and that's like an official submission. Um, but it, it again is just about site planning, and you have to get that site plan approval before you can submit for building permits. The the reason I kind of lay out that process is that that's four steps. And every time somebody at the city sees it again and weighs in again and then eventually offers approval again, it begins to build momentum towards this, uh, towards what you end up seeing in gotcha. the end. And so the the public, really their first opportunity to be involved with that is about halfway through that process. Gotcha. Um, and, and like I said earlier, uh, the public isn't always showing up, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, Maybe a problem with communication from the city about what's happening in the city, but also maybe on the on the public's account. Like, come on, show yeah. up, right? Yeah. And by the time you show up, there's already been a, a lot of conversation uh, happening in the background. Well, and and that four step process that uh, could put anybody to sleep is our, already has a few steps before that that I think is the major opportunity for people to be more engaged, and that's especially. That Matt was making the assumption that the zoning is right for the site to do the type of building you want to do. What we're seeing all the time right now uh, in our city is that 
um, like what we saw recently with Shaw University. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're going through years of zoning changes, yeah. and that's yeah. that's a big deal where we're, we're saying this is not what this land is best used for anymore. And so there's all kinds of implications and history with zoning that we don't need to get into on this conversation, but... Uh, those those moments are the real opportunities for communities to band together to to act as a unit rather than in self kind of uh, indul- indulgent avenues, right? Self seeking avenues uh, where it's really important where um, they come together and create edges and say, no, this is not what that is best used for. Uh, that is not the commanding influence in the neighborhood, wh- whatever the context may be. And a lot of times with those zoning changes come these uh, very bizarre kind of marshmallowy cartoon shapes that equal <laughs> architecture. Uh, and those shapes end up getting, you know, sold off to developers. Developers fall in love with the cartoon and then the cartoon ends up becoming the thing that eventually gets built. It's a then they get skinned in cementitious panels, and <laughs> yeah. then they get built. <laughs> well, and then you add every trim profile you could ever imagine and paint it at least seven colors. Yeah, and then you right. got it. You got it. <laughs> you got we, your perfect we, building. We call, the, we call the colors visual interest. That's visual one interest, key, yeah. That's one of the key things. And you yeah. can normally identify all the colors through all the condiments you have in your refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> Ketchup, mustard, relish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, this, but this lean into the next, this my, my ne- very next question, like what are the consequences? Like, and I, yeah, I'm sort of talking about it now, but like what are the consequences of like, Ignoring community voice, and I'm I'm using the word ignoring because um, Matt, you mentioned that there's there's responsibility to be shared across several players, and there's some responsibility to be aware and alert. This podcast that we're we're talking to an audience that will never t- hear an architect again. So there's some terms like UDO that you use mm. that we have to define that for. Mm. So if you go in the room and they're only speaking in acronyms, there's only attorneys or the, the institution of local government walking into that building and seeing seals and seeing, you know, somebody check to see if you have any firearms on you. In some communities, that's trauma. That's, I mean, to be able to yeah. enter that space mm-hmm. and just be, and you have every right. Your taxes is paying for the lights in that building. But um, it, it's, it's not an open door in certain communities as perceived. And so what does it mean to ignore, and I'm using that word broadly, to ignore community voice on the design quality of buildings and, and landscapes? And why would projects try to bypass feedback from not just residents, but you both? Like, why would, why would anybody even be motivated to do that? Like, why, why would that even be in the calculation? I mean, to me, to me, it goes back to uh, what developers have to do to make things work all the time. I mean, I, it's not to give them an excuse because yeah. <laughs> I think we've got to figure out a way to handle it better. But, um, but they're really, I mean, the way the entire uh, scheme is set up forces them to be as expedient as possible. And so every iteration is a loss of money. Every, vo- every dissenting voice is a potential barrier to to profit um and it and so the the whole thing gets pushed by that um i I mean i think to make the process more accessible there you know the the city developers designers need to do i mean it's what's so nice about this podcast need to do a better job of removing barriers for people to be involved Um, and many times those barriers aren't physical barriers they are barriers of perception or experience or fear or whatever it might be is that, you know, many of the things you mentioned, um, you know, for example, on the appearance commission, which I sit on, uh, you're only allowed to get up and make comments that are directly tied to the UDO, which stands for Unified Development Ordinance, which is the zoning code in the city. Uh, and you're only allowed to make statements of fact that have something to do with the staff findings about the project. <laughs> so how in the world uh, is someone who, you know, is uh, a librarian or, uh, you know, works in the food service industry right. who doesn't do what I do all yeah. day, 
uh, I have a hard enough time with it, <laughs> going to get up there and engage the process in a way that even works in a quasi-judicial setting, really good. right? Really good. Uh, so it's a My really word. Yeah, quasi-judicial. <laughs> so it's a really, I mean, there there are things in place that are that are in place for good reasons. Not yeah, to say those things yeah, aren't yeah. done that way for a reason, yeah. uh, but they do, and the intent probably was never for it to be this way, they do create barriers uh, to people kind of getting involved. But but from the development standpoint, I mean, it, it is literally all about time and money. Uh, and so, uh, you know, what I, I said earlier, we don't do a lot of large development projects kind of by design. Uh, we also don't have developers knocking down our door because they, they know the way we think about things and we're not the fastest. Yes. Um, and, you know, and it's interesting, many of the many of the projects that are done in town, major development projects that are done in town are done by um, architects from other cities who mm. only do work of that scale and that type. Gotcha. And, you know, to be frank, they're hired kind of as mercenaries. Mm. Uh, they don't have any connection to the place. They don't really, in the end, they, they, they care about buildings yeah, and yeah, that yeah. the buildings be well executed because they're architects yeah. and we have a professional ethical obligation to care about that. But, but they don't have like deep, meaningful, personal connections with the places they're building in. And they, they're, they're brought in, I mean, I think mercenary is the right word. Is wow. this kind of, we're going to get this thing done. We've done this exact scale and type of building three dozen times in the last 10 years. And we're going to knock it out of the park for you. Wow. Uh, and we're going to know exactly what drawings to do and what things to show to the planning commission to make wow. sure that they're getting the information they need. We're not going to do a single extra drawing. We're just right. going to do those drawings, That's right? Uh, and it, it's a real, I mean, it's a, a very efficient and streamlined process. And that's what that's what the public's up against. Wow. That's good. Concept. You can kind of see that sometimes uh, if you're just driving through different cities. The easiest one to find, and it's on a much smaller scale, are banks. Start looking, paying attention to what the bank looks like. Then pay attention to that same bank in the next town and see how wow. they just slightly changed one material or changed really the changed the color of the paint or whatever it may be. And so there's kind of this recycling that's, good. that's happening of this uh, this same plan over and over again. And it it has no idea what site it's going to land on. The mm. parking lot changed a little bit of shapes, but. You know, all of a sudden the dumpsters are facing a residential house uh, for really one good. in one town rather than facing the back of another building where it worked better in another. So, A, a bigger example is Sky House. There's one, of, there's one Sky House in downtown Raleigh. Yep. There's two in downtown Charlotte. I think mm. it's called like Sky View or something like that. And there's four of them in downtown Atlanta. Wow. Um, and they're the, they're the exact same building. Uh, sometimes a little taller, yeah, because uh, they can just keep extruding. Uh, wow. if they, you know, if they need to make more money on the on the property, um, but it, yeah, it, I mean that's a that's a phenomenon for sure, and that that's the most expedient example. It's like we've already designed the building. Here it is. So you ask the question, you know, why? I think it's easier, mm. right? And the the consequences, I think it's emptier. Where we where you're not going to more than likely see it in the first. I don't know, 20 years of the building. Yeah. You see it in how it affects generations after uh, that. that is Architecture strong, is that. such a such a long game. It's, it's just that. about, you wow. know, the, the ripple effect that you see in Raleigh right now is the result of decisions that were made a long time ago now. I love that you're talking about generations because I'm in, in pre-recording conversation that we've had, um, you've mentioned the difference between cheap in like well-designed spaces. And so how should a person understand a quality design versus a cheap design? Like how, how can an average person, or is it invisible? Like do you have to like see the bare bones of the building? But you know, what are the quality of life benefits in centering quality designs in the city um, versus cheaply designed? Uh, and again, I'm, I'm using this question so that people can get like just a glimpse. They may not understand everything you you say, um, but when you say quality design buildings, everything modern seems to be cool right now. But I've met some architects. I was like, "That's cheaply made and it's expensive." But in my plain eye, they both look yeah. <laughs> both look good to me. But they can tell by looking at it. This is poorly made, and this one is quality made. Help the average eyes at least get a. Cliff note version of like what to understand because it does impact your life. Yeah. It does degrade down over generations. It does reduce in quality or or just sustainability. So like can you help us get sort of like a cliff note? 
I mean, for me, there are two different ways to think about quality. One is uh, the quality of the thing itself. Uh, and then the other is the quality of the experience that people have when they are utilizing the spaces in the building or in the landscape that's been designed. Um, and then there's a quick third that's aesthetics, which I think is yeah. mostly subjective and opinion-based, right? That's right, w- which I would lump into the experience, but I agree. There's also just the, when I drive by this building, is it attractive? So I'm not a user of the building, but the building's in my city and I mm-hmm. see it. So that's, yeah, that's a great, that's a great third one. And, um, Man, I mean, we could do we could teach a whole semester's class on, <laughs> on this topic, but I think um, I do think that material quality, the quality of the thing itself, is the hardest thing to uh, get right in our country and okay. in our culture, um, for one primary reason, and that is that more than almost any other country in the world, the vast majority of buildings in this country are built speculatively. They are not built by the people who will own the buildings for any really long good. period of time. And so, and, and that's not really anybody's fault. It's kind of the fact that we're an adolescent country. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And we still have an abundance of space and we're still in this kind of process of, you know, expand West. I mean, yes. that's still in yes. our cultural really imagination, right? Um, really and so we, uh, we do try to build quickly and uh, as effectively and, you know, uh, oftentimes cheaply as possible um, because that's been our kind of cultural instinct for a long time. And especially when most things are built speculatively because of the pressures that developers are under that we've already talked about, uh, it, it kind of exacerbates that that phenomenon. Um, so it's the hardest one to get right. But it's also like when you go to uh, to Europe, you know, the, as in comparison to the United States, many more buildings are built by the corporations who will mm, occupy the building or built really by the people good. who will live in the projects or, really or, or cooperative uh, kind of housing conditions. And, really and there's good. much more of an instinct to build well and to build things that last. Uh, there's also a, a much longer and richer building history from a pre-industrial time when things were built of much more durable materials. So there's like a cultural expectation that people have of things being durable. Or, mm. I mean, we're talking like wood and stone and concrete right. and things that last hundreds of years. Um, and so we, we just live in, a, I think, a really different culture. And it'd be one of the hardest things in the world to convince anybody involved in development to build at that level of quality wow. until you get to uh, cities the size of Chicago, San Francisco, LA, New York, um, the, in Boston, that they're you know those are older cities yeah. that have a pre-industrial history that you know everybody's having to distinguish from themselves from a qualitative basis. And yeah. So you're much more likely to get mm. uh, higher quality buildings. So so that I mean that's that first one is kind of the the material quality, the quality of experience. Uh, I, one of our kind of firmest beliefs is that you can make wonderful space using any material. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're in a room right now that is sheetrock and sealed concrete floors, and they didn't finish the ceiling, but you've sprayed it, uh, sprayed it with some uh, fire uh, retardant material mm-hmm. because it had, had to meet fire code, which also helps with sound in here, which is super cool. Um, and, uh, you know, but it's a pretty basic space. It's not a great example because it's interior and doesn't have any exterior windows, but like using these exact same materials, you can have good natural light, Mm. you can have natural ventilation, you can have a good proportion of space, you can have a good flow to the space. Those are things that can exist in every level of quality building, uh, regardless of what the thing's made out of. And I I think that's where we, that's the opportunity we have on every building that going too quickly, not being thoughtful enough misses, right? I mean, can you imagine if you were renting your unbelievably expensive apartment in one of these new apartment buildings downtown. And you, you're not a designer, so you're yeah. not thinking about this stuff. And you get in your in your new space that you're so excited about. You might even have a view of downtown, which mm-hmm. was marketed to you by the person who sold it to you. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, all my windows face due south and I have no overhang and I can't even have the curtains away from my windows because it just cooks me in my house, uh, right? Good. We didn't really think about what we were doing here. Uh, I mean, that sort of mistake is made, you know, a million times over wow. every day in the projects that are happening in the city because nobody slowed down long enough to think about uh, what it means to make quality space and connect people with the environment and the and the kind of communities that are already there, right? And you can do that with sheetrock and cheap windows and all the stuff that developers are using to make their buildings. And I actually think that that's one sales pitch we have that hasn't been fully explored is we can save developers money by doing things smarter. 
Mm. Like you look at some of those same apartment buildings, Matt, that you're talking about where they take these like model two bedroom units and one bedroom. And then this is the studio loft version. And they just cram them all together. And whatever happens on the outside with jigs and jogs mm. and ins and outs and ups and downs, that all costs money. That's expensive because mm. every surface you expose, you got to figure out how to finish it. So, mm. you know, if we could help rein some of those in to more, you know, comprehensible forms, uh, it becomes a, a a more affordable, attainable pro, uh, product for them as well. I and mean, that, that the kind of jigs and jogs and in and outs is a great example. Uh, I mean, if, for for example, and there are lot there are lots of precedent buildings that do this. Um, if you move all those jigs and jogs to the interior, mm. uh, you you suddenly start creating uh, more generous internal communal mm. spaces uh, that can have their own qualities of light. It could be places where people gather in groups instead of only being in their apartments. Mm. And you clean up the perimeter mm. of the building and give yourself the possibility of producing something that's uh, simple enough to be beautiful, right? right. I mean, that, that's the thing that most people miss about the most wow. beautiful cities in this country is uh, most of the buildings are incredibly simple wow. in their forms uh, and incredibly clear yeah. uh, in their style. Uh, and that's why they're beautiful. Uh, wow. And we, we push all that mess to the exterior, and then you've just got to start solving problems. You know, I've, I've, I listened to you, and um, what would be missed if people are listening is that what you're talking about is that the colors of the walls, the way you face the sun, where the sun is setting, all of that contributes to a healthy body. Like not just not just less expense. You're talking about like a healthy human being. A like, happy human being. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and another one that people don't think about is the way materials age over time. Mm. Um, many of the uh, expedient building materials we use today are intended to be beautiful when things are first built, or at least for the first three to five years that it takes the developer to uh, get their ROI and unload the property. Uh, but then these are not materials that are that, that take on the environment well. As soon as they get dirty, as soon as they age, they start to look old. They start to look dingy. Uh, not, old it like in, a, not old in like a uh, patina, beautiful yeah. kind of yeah. distinguished way. Yeah, yeah. They I, look short for the fourth short for this world at um, that point. I, I went to a school that was um, designed to make the kids feel like they're outside. Hmm. This school is called the Lucy Daniels Center. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And they didn't tell me anything. They just said, you got to come and see the space. So I said, okay. I mean, I've been to a billion schools. I've been a principal teacher for a long time. I said, wow, you want me to come see this school? And I'm used to schools looking the same. Hmm. So I'm used to like, I know, I know what the front door, I know, you know. When I drove into the school, it was all woods. So I'm like, okay, this is different. It's a good start. It's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> when you get inside, it's almost like both sides are all glass, and every classroom has an all glass like side to it. There's there's a wall in which you have the teacher front, but every classroom has a glass side, and you're looking into the woods. Every from floor from from floor to ceiling, every classroom, and the every. Uh, Part of the playground is made out of natural, like wood, or or it, everything is made with just such intention. I was like, man, this school is amazing. I was like, when was this made? It was like nineteen. <laughs> I mean, they went back, and I was like, wow. I mean, it almost like a brand new, almost <laughs> like a brand new school. I mean, it was it was made so well that you can't guess the time. Yeah, yeah. Like you, mm. like you can't guess the time, and it's that's a it, beautiful phrase. Oh it was made so well that you can't guess the time. It, it 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 was beneficial to the kids they had in mind then, and then you just move to today, and yeah. it's still beneficial <laughs> to the kids today. I think that building was finished in '87, if I remember correctly. It was definitely it was the late '80s. W. G. Clark and Charlie Menifee, who wow. had a, they had a practice in Charleston for. A little over a decade before they both went to teach at uh, at uh, University of Virginia. Wow! Um, but in that short time, they did a number of really remarkable buildings, including that school. Wow! Uh, that are yeah very thoughtfully designed. I mean, even and and this is going to lead into the very last you know, two questions that I want to throw your way. 
they were talking around adding to the space. And there were rules and whatever bylaws, whatever it is, that require a certain quality of build, build space to be added on to this building. I mean, it's, it's, it, it was so deliberate, so intentional that there is that they they have implemented rules to make sure that it remains that way, even if you add to the space. And I just think about things that are just. I remember being in a school and there was port port portables everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like there's no like we we just need <laughs> we need thirty more students. Let's get a portable. I mean, there's no thought. We yeah. just let's move, let's move. And this school is like let's sit. We want to make sure that there's rules around the the the, the way it looks at the wood, the way it looks mm-hmm. at trees, the way it looks at the sun. And so when y'all talk, I'm thinking of that school as something in mind of like a well-built space that allows for the human being to thrive, not just in having, you know, sort of a financial investment, which most people only go there, but their access to light, their access to outside, their access to... And so with, oh, ahead, I mean, just on the topic of schools, I mean, that that's a very specialized school, right? Mm. And it's very small. That's right. And, and it, right. it costs much more per square foot right. than a Wake County public school. Uh, but we don't want to make these things sound unattainable. I mean, you, there are other cultures so uh, where there are large populations with large numbers of you know young people going to school where who design schools with all of those same things wow, in mind. And good. it's about, it really is about what we invest in, right? Uh, and it, I mean, you, like the older schools in the city, with there's you know a handful of them mm-hmm. still around downtown. Only mm-hmm. only a few of which are still used as actual public schools, um, but like Wiley and Washington and the front of Lucille Hunter and mm-hmm. um, there's a you know a number of them. They were really well made, yeah, and they're really beautiful That's spaces. Good. And That's every right. room has big windows, and I That's mean it right. just goes on and on, right? So well, and not to mention people are fighting to get their kids in there. Yeah, those are the ones is, they want. Good. That's they good, want. Though. That's right. So I mean, it's not only attainable; it, it used to happen in this country mm. too. Um, I, I, like I was, I was just in Iceland, and uh, the nicest buildings in the country that we saw were were the uh, schools for kids. It was amazing to see. I want to merge two questions together, and then, then I would love to get you to share um, how listeners can find you. What are you doing to increase the number of diverse voices? Um, in the creative design and architectural space. And um, most people who don't know Raleigh or North Carolina won't know that you put on this dynamic event to really bring in, I mean, I've seen the interns you've had and they're from everywhere. <laughs> and I've, I've seen the topics you talked about and they're about everything. Um, so one, what are you doing to increase the number of diverse voices? And then the other thing is how can the average person in- increase their influence on local mm-hmm. zoning decisions? So I just want to merge those two together. Hmm. So we started um, Real Matter Workshop three years ago now, and it was kind of a our office's COVID baby. We were all locked in uh, our own houses, uh, in our own spheres, <laughs> without the influence of each other, which mm-hmm. we're used to sitting around one table and having kind of camaraderie in our office. So that was Kind of on the back end of that, we needed something to dream for and so, mm-hmm. um, and to be hopeful for uh, in terms of our practice. But at the same time, it also became kind of a baked into the ethos of mm-hmm. what we do. And so this workshop uh, is, you know, an opportunity for us to bridge communities, bridge ideas across uh, different places. Uh, uh, we're really just trying to make our place better. Um, but at the same time, it's really also a, uh, an extension of our teaching, which we also do at NC State uh, in the design school there uh, as a way to share this process that we think is so valuable about listening and being context-specific and uh, understanding voices. Uh, I'm sure you have more to add to that, Matt. Uh, but that, I mean... That's that's the lifeblood of our office now. I think uh, it started out as uh, we us needing a lifeline because we had too much <laughs> on our plates, but now it's become like I can't imagine how we separate the two identities. Yeah, I think we've always the office has always had a kind of academic bent or mm-hmm. a or a outreach or service bent. Um, 
Zach mentioned teaching. Um, you know, several of us in the office teach at universities pretty much every semester. Um, and we do preach what we practice to mm. reverse that. Um, mm. We, 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 we uh, really try to encourage young designers to take risks and see the world more completely and find ways to plug in and respond to what they're seeing uh, with thoughtful design responses. Um, and, you know, from, a, from bringing more voices into the profession specifically, um, you know, the architecture profession, thank God, has been getting more and more diverse. I mean, 20 years ago, every yeah. single architect looked like Zach and Matt here. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a tragic scene. Uh, and and it's um, it's been getting a lot better, both from a, a gender and uh, ethnic background um, perspective. And as a, as a professor, you know, knowing that I'm in a profession that hasn't always uh, been welcoming to all people and... Um, has discouraged the involvement mm. of certain groups of people, even sometimes actively, unfortunately, uh, in, in the past, um, just to make sure that the right people are being encouraged to stick with it, right? And so that, I mean, I think that's a that's a big big part of it. Zach already spoke a little bit about the workshop. I mean, it, it's a it's been more than a like lifesaver over the last three years. It's been the thing that we I think you use the word live for. I mean, it really is a really incredible uh, privilege to be organizing this thing every year. We spend about nine months out of the year working on it mm, <laughs> and take a three month break because cool. we have to, and then we, you know, get another mo- nine months into it. But, you know, it, it, there are two main thrusts to it. One is we bring young designers here from all over the country uh, to participate in a two week design charrette that uh, where they identify problems in downtown Raleigh mm-hmm. and they propose really fun. What if, but also impactful and serious, uh, you know, proposals mm. for how can we address this issue? Mm. And it's a way for us to really exhibit what we were saying earlier, which is that you know, designers have really we think differently. We don't think better than everybody yeah. else. We just yeah. think differently, yeah. and we're gonna we're gonna like identify ideas early on. Yeah. Uh, that that could tackle some of these things, and some of them will be crazy for sure, because we're also a little crazy. But <laughs> but some of them will be things that no one's ever thought of before, wow. right? And so we're just trying to build this dialogue about what could be happening specifically in downtown Raleigh to include all people in the built environment. Uh, and then the other main part of it um, is we we pair the workshop with a really robust lecture series that has um, some some evenings that focus on local issues, but then some evenings where we bring other very successful uh, designers from all over the Mm. world to Raleigh to give talks about the way they practice. Mm. And we focus on people who have innovative practices. practices, In in their place. Yeah, in their places, right? So they might be coming from Winnipeg or from Mexico City or from LA or wherever it might be, even Mallorca in one case, um, to talk specifically about how they work in their place and how as designers they engage their communities. Um, and we do that, uh, it's a, that lecture series is open to the public and the whole point of it is to bring the city in, uh, not just architects, but other designers and people who aren't designers at all um, to come in and just talk about what's happening in the city, make observations about it, maybe critique it. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of pep rally really vibe good. too because we also yeah. love Raleigh. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just been a really wonderful uh, experience. And the, the people who've attended the workshop, the people who've come to the talks, the projects we're engaging, I think are an incredibly diverse um, offering and, and engagement, which we're, which we're pretty uh, surprised by <laughs> and, and a little bit proud of because it's like, oh man, this is actually kind of working, right? It's kind of cool. The, the other side to it though, just to be honest, is it, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, let's confess our sins. Yeah, uh, yeah, we, yeah. you know, we, and all architects, whether they admit it or not, um, have the same sense. Uh, we some of the projects we do are really important public projects, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and we feel uh, that those have a big impact on the community. Yeah. Um, like all architects, we also work on projects that have a more limited impact. Yeah. Uh, and in some cases, we've worked on projects over the years where we know the the building type or where we're doing it or whatever it might be is out of balance with where it's being I done. And that that's the real part of this is yeah. you know we're not hobby architects. Yeah. We, we have families. We've got. I got. I got three kids that are going to be in college here pretty yeah. soon. It's a real emergency. So you know, we're trying to run a practice, and and we have to, you know, it's it's the livelihood for seven people right now. Yeah. What we do in the in the office, and so, you know, we don't always as architects because of these things we've been talking about. We don't always get to be a part of the conversations mm-hmm. we want to be a part of 
early enough to make a difference. And this workshop was a kind of effort to admit that yeah. problem yeah. and try to do something about it. I, I just have to say, one, you allowed for me to be on one of the panels. And one, I, the invitation was amazing. But the idea that you talked about, that you had on as, as like the question, it was about proximity. And then I shared the panel with, like, I'm in community. And you had raw community leaders, not fake, you know. <laughs> These were like Betty Murchison um, in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, Carmen Kaufman was in the room in the audience. I mean, these are like raw, well-trusted sort of leaders, um, especially in Southeast Raleigh. They have a long history of like leaning into community and you had them on the panel. And, um, and I don't think we would have ever been in that room collectively. And I don't think the audience would have ever heard of us or heard from us collectively. And so I just appreciate how you not only had us on the panel, but you allowed for us to talk about our lane. Hmm. So we were talking about proximity. What does it mean to, to close the distance between who you design for and what you're designing? And, and this was in a room where um, we were t having hard conversations about, you know, you know, how do we make sure that we're designing the right thing for the right people and listening to the right people and understanding history and context? And so I just appreciate you putting this on because it's, 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 it's allowing for conversations to be heard that would have never have had that sort of unique mix of people in the room. Um, I remember we were talking about a space that was historically African-American in Raleigh's history, but have since been a more mixed um, part of the city. And one of the individuals in the, in the audience stood up and said, that used to be a laundromat. Mm -hmm. And we paused for a while because it's a cool place, it's a hip place, it's thriving. Mm -hmm. But then she said, where are people washing their clothes? You know, like, I just, I can't, I can't get that out of my mind. I mean, we talked about a lot, but that question, where are you washing clothes, goes back mm -hmm. to your original goal of like improving the quality of life. <laughs> like, like the human being has to be a healthier human being after the design space adjusts to their life and their feedback and their input. So I just appreciate you. You probably don't get a chance to hear that from somebody that's in the community. I'm not in the design space at all, yeah. but I have benefited from your conversation. So I just appreciate you doing that. Well, and, and to to build on that, you um, the name of the lecture series this year is the closer you get. Wow. And we actually <laughs> talked about the panel last year wow. that you were on wow. and that idea of proximity, wow. uh, and that 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 would be a great. Uh, kind of theme for yeah. the lecture series this wow. year. So that, I mean, that to us is a really important part of it is we're not, we aren't the leading voices at the workshop. Yeah. We don't have an agenda at all. Mm. Our goal is to kind of bring people in the room and let it go where it goes. Um, and, and that, you know, it's kind of evolved over the years. And, you know, I mean, to leave you like a really positive thought about architects, the education we receive, mm. the, um, calling that's laid on us by our professors, uh, uh, the wear it on your sleeve intensity that most mm. architects possess that makes us sometimes the most annoying person in the room. <laughs> uh, that, I mean, we're not the only people in town who feel mm. that way, who want those things, who see those things, who can contribute those things. And it, this is evidenced by the fact that the workshop is sponsored by over 30 different companies this wow. year, half of whom are our direct competitors wow. uh, as wow. designers. I mean, wow. this is a frustration that a lot of architects feel is wow. this incapacity to figure out how to manipulate your profession wow. to get to the point where you're in the room at the right time, talking about the right things, having the right impact, that's right? Cool. And so that's the main thrust behind it. Wow. And so we're closed with how can the audience find you? Zach and Matt, I know you have <laughs> in situ. And so I think it's in situ.com. Am I accurate on that? No, it's even, it's way weirder. It's way, <laughs> it's way more complicated. <laughs> it's uh, it's, it's uh, us. Uh, which we always joke is because this is our U.S. office, but yeah. we actually only have one office. It's in it's in Raleigh, um, and in situ studio is uh, I dot us like dot us. Yeah, <laughs> this us is here. us. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's uh, yeah, and, and to spell that, it's uh, I N S I T U uh, studio dot dot us. And if you go there, um, we we, uh, we can't get out of our own way. There's this really obscure little <laughs> logo in the upper right corner of the website um, that is 
it's a weird shape, but it has a number 23 in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the uh, Real Matter logo. And if you click, click on that logo, it'll take you to the... Um, to the page for the workshop. Um, and there's a big, that's the one thing we did really well. There's a big red <laughs> button on the workshop page that, um, that is where you can reserve seats for the, there for the uh, lecture series. It, it happens in person and live streams. So no matter where you are in the world, you can be a part of these things, including asking questions at the end. Uh, but the live version is, uh, happening. We're super stoked at Kings this wow. year, right in downtown Raleigh. So, so it's awesome. going to be a, going to be fun. So awesome. And now, um, so that's the studio. Oh, one other fun thing. You yeah. can also just come by our office. We've got a really uh, comfortable lounge in the front that has <laughs> no all, all kinds of architecture books. We are uh, very fortunate. We have a storefront right on North Person Street, which oh, when we perfect. moved there, didn't have anything going on. But now it's like one of the nicest parts of the city. Um, and uh, you're welcome to just come hang out. We are our, our uh, conference table doubles as a ping pong table. If you like oh, ping pong, we'll, we'll challenge you to a game. So, yeah. <laughs> So again, Matt and Zach, I want to just thank you so much for taking the time to hang with me today um, and sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, and just giving people a chance to really understand what's the room mm -hmm. and how do they you know, sort of exercise their influence in that room. Um, I thank you for allowing us to get a glimpse into your craft. Um, with that being said, I want to thank everyone for listening um, to this episode of Illogical by Truth Podcast. This episode was... Edited and produced by Airfluence, I'm Terrence Roof, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. <laughs>